We thank you that we get to start this first Sunday of the month remembering the cross, the blood that was shed, the body that was broken, in the very place where our lives were changed forever because of good news. And we thank you that you sealed the good news with an empty tomb that validated all that you proclaim to be true. So we bless you that you're alive forevermore, that you're walking in our midst even as we're here today, that your desire is to look over this flock with compassion and to meet each one of us in every need that we have. I pray, God, that our hearts would open to you and that you would be able to write your truths upon us and that you'd be able to touch each one of us in the area where we need it. Build us up, Lord. Prepare us, because we know you're coming soon for your bride. And may the pure word work a purifying effect in each one of our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you want to turn to Genesis chapter 48, that's where we're going to be. This church has been built upon the Word of God. And that our commitment is to teach it chapter by chapter, line upon line. And we are inching our way to the end of Genesis. We're going to tackle two chapters today, God willing. And uh, next week we're going to close out with the very end of Joseph's life. But today we see the end of a man who is dominated so many of the chapters uh, that we see here in the book of Genesis, a man by the name of Jacob. So as we picked up, or as we left off a few weeks ago, we realized that there was a promise that he demanded. He wanted his remains taken out of Egypt. And he wanted to be buried back in the promised land. And then we find him worshiping. We see him down in a position of worship, and he's preparing himself to go home. Now, we do know this about life. It goes very fast, and the chapters of our life seem very short when you put them on a timeline of eternity. And we've watched the coming and the going of so many individuals, people who have made the Hall of Faith, people whose examples we've gleaned from, people's examples that we've been warned by. And we see these things, they come on the scene and they're, they're on and they're off after a few chapters and our life goes just as quickly. But the Bible tells us this, and I think about this because I, I think we really got to process what's going on here. This man is leaving, he's dying, he's going to have his family around him. But Hebrews tells us that it's appointed unto man once to die and then to judgment. Once to die and then a judge. That takes care of reincarnation, okay? Once to die. You're not going to die ten times as different animals or anything like that. But it's the point, once to die and then a judgment. But the question is, which judgment? The Bible talks about a great white throne judgment where the unbelievers will be judged because in this life they rejected Jesus Christ and they will be cast into the lake of fire forever 
and ever and ever. The absence of God, the absence of everything good. But it, the Bible also talks about a judgment seat of reward. Based upon how you and I chose to live our lives in the short vapor, the short chapter that we've been given. And that's where we either receive rewards from Christ or we actually lose rewards. It has no basis on our salvation or even entering into heaven, but, but it has a basis on our standing there. So as we look at this with Jacob, we're going to pick up verse 1. It came to pass after these things that one told Joseph, Behold, thy father is sick. And in the Hebrew, that literally means he's rapidly declining. He's 147 years old. Okay, I'm 50 right now with the aches and pains. Well, 53, but with the aches and the pains. Man, I couldn't imagine being 147. So he's 147 years old. He's rapidly declining. And we've watched him in the book of Genesis. We've seen him from the womb, and now he's heading to the tomb. His story began in chapter 25 in Rebecca's womb. And it comes to a conclusion here in chapter 48 and 49. I look at that, I look at my life, and I realize that this life truly is a vapor. James tells us that what is your life? It's a vapor. It appears a little time. It vanishes away. And Job says that we are but a few days. And I think it's really important for us as believers not to get laissez-faire with the Word of God, but to allow what it has to say, what it has to speak into our lives to do the transforming in our lives and to make the impact in our heart that it needs to have so that we don't do life wrong, so that we don't squander life, so that we don't have regrets at the end. Sure, we might have a few, but I think when you look at it, the whole consensus of believing the Bible is living to fellowship with Jesus Christ while we're here on earth and then living to glorify him from that fellowship and doing whatever we've been called to to promote the kingdom of God because this one's going to perish, that one's coming, and it'll be forever. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Now remember, they're probably in their 20s. They were born to him while they were in Egypt. You know, 17 years, Jacob and Joseph had a relationship. Then they were uh, removed from one another. Jacob carried all this pain because his boys lied to him, said that his brother was killed when he was really alive. And then they get to spend the last 17 years together. So they had 34 years together, the beginning year and the end year. And while Joseph was in Egypt, he gave birth to, or his wife gave birth, let's clarify that, to, to these to these two boys, Manasseh and Ephraim, remember one meaning forgetfulness and the other one meaning fruitfulness. And one told Jacob and said, Behold, thy son Joseph comes unto thee. <clears throat> In Israel, look at it, strengthened himself and he sat up upon his bed. You want to help someone that's dying, just be there for them. I've learned that over the years, I've been put in hot situations, heartbreaking situations, catastrophic situations. And as a guy and as a pastor, I got to think, what words can I say? What promises can I give? What scriptures can I quote? And the reality is, most of the time, those people already know those words. They already know those scriptures. They haven't let go of them. 
I've come to the conclusion that a lot of times when people are suffering, all they need you to do is be close and love them through it. It's not always about having the words, but it's about having the heart. And we see here with Joseph that he comes alongside his dying father and he brings his sons because our love and our presence is a great help. It's a great help. Verse 3 says, And Jacob said unto Joseph, Now, now look at you, you may, they say that your life flashes towards the end of your life. I, I don't know if that's true or not. I haven't got there yet. I'll let you know if I make it through. But, and Jacob said unto Joseph, God Almighty appeared unto me. All right, he never, he's reminiscent about his life, where it all changed. And it all changed at this moment. And he's going back to one of the greatest events of his life. And I'll tell you what, the greatest event of my life was the day that Jesus Christ became my Lord and Savior. That was by far... I've had a lot of great events. Don't get me wrong. Married, kids, all that stuff. But the day Jesus Christ became my Lord and Savior was the greatest event of my life. And this is where Jacob's going. He's telling his son about it. And he says, the Lord God Almighty, he appeared unto me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me. Now, Luz was another name for Bethel, where Jacob first met God. And Bethel literally means the house of God. He never forgot his encounter at Bethel, the house of God. And, and for us, you know, we get to meet in the house of God every Sunday. Sometimes more than that if you come to the midweek stuff. But the reality of coming to the house of God is so that we can encounter the God of the house. That's why we're here today. We're here today because we want to encounter the God of the house. And that's what happened with Jacob back when he was on the run from his brother because of the scandal him and his mom had to steal the birthright and the blessing. And I think for us, as we're here today, as much as we want people to come to the house of God, come to church, the main thing is, is that we emphasize coming to church is great, but it doesn't mean anything if you don't come to Christ. And the danger, the thing for me as a pastor that I'm always concerned about is having, a, ha- having people within the walls of this place that are church, but they're not saved. All right? The bottom line is, good thing you're here, but is Jesus Christ really your Lord and Savior? Because that's the main, when it all comes down to it, your eternal destination is hinged on what you do with Jesus Christ. Have you come to a place like Jacob where you actually surrendered your life to him? And even though you might have stumbled along the way, there's been this constant fruit that's being produced in this real living fellowship with the living Son of God. Because that's a necessity. That's a necessity, that we put our trust in him, make him our Lord and Savior, and then on the other side of that, there's a change that he begins to produce in our life because it's not knowing about Jesus for information, but it's knowing Jesus for transformation. And his life was totally transformed. And he said unto me, Behold, I'm going to make you fruitful, and I'm going to multiply thee, and I will make of thee a multitude of people, and will give this land to thy seed after thee for an everlasting possession. So the blessings giving of old are transferring into his life of the present. God was blessing him. And, and, and you know, one of the things that, that we see here with him is he's attributing all the blessings of his life to God. Look, at, God is the source of our blessings, no matter, you're not the source of your blessing. Your employer is not the source of your blessing. Your spouse, your parents are not the source of your blessing. God, James 1.17 says, Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, 
and comes down from the Father of lights, with who there's no variableness, neither shadow of turning. That means the Bible categorizes two different types of blessing in our lives. Good blessings. The good blessings of our life. We're a blessed people. I mean, number one, we're blessed because we're the eternal people of God. But number two, we get to live in one of the greatest nations in the world. I believe us in Israel are the greatest nations in the world. So, so the good blessings, the human relationships that we have, okay? Imperfect, but they're good blessings. Marriages, kids, the friends that we have, the brotherhood, the sisterhood that we have here, the material blessings that God has given to us, the talents, the abilities, even the successes. You know, these are good gifts that God's given to us, but He's also given us perfect gifts. And the perfect gifts of God are salvation in Jesus Christ, the Word of God, the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, and a place called heaven that we're on our way to. All right? But the common denominator is all the good in our life has come from God. Whether people want to acknowledge that truth or not is irrelevant because that is the truth. So when, when you doubt the love of God for you or God's concern for you, you look and maybe things are hard, not everything is good. But I'll tell you what, everything that is good, it came from your Father in life who does not change and who loves you. And that's a should be a confidence that we have in our heart and a comfort to our heart of the value that we hold to Almighty God. And verse 5 says, And now the two sons of Ephraim, the two, now my, thy two sons Ephraim and Manasseh, which were born unto thee in the land of Egypt, before I came unto thee in Egypt, they're mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. So basically what he's doing, he's adopting them. He's adopting them in to give them all the rights, all the privileges, and all the positions of his other sons, okay? Even though they were his grandkids. So really, the tribe of Joseph is going to be comprised of these two, Ephraim and Manasseh. And he said, uh, verse 6, And thy issue which thou begettest after them shall be thine, and shall be called after the name of their brethren in their inheritance. And as for me, when I came by Pandam, Rachel died by me in the land of Canaan in a way, when yet there was but a little way to come unto Ephrath, and I buried her there in the way of Ephrath, the same as Bethlehem. So that was a heartbreaking situation where, where the love of his life, Rachel, the one that he waited so long for to be his wife, that's where she died giving birth to his younger brother, Benjamin. And Israel beheld Joseph's sons and said, Who are these? And Joseph said unto his father, My two sons, whom God has given me in this place. And he said, Bring them, I pray thee unto me, and I'm going to bless them. Now the eyes of Israel, or Jacob, were dim for age, so that he could not see. And he brought them near to him, and he kissed them, and he embraced them. So what we see Joseph doing here is he's bringing his sons to his father and presenting them to him. Who's he presenting to his father? Forgetfulness and fruitfulness. That's who he's presenting to his father. Someday you and I, as I spoke about earlier, we're going to present our lives to God, to our father. And I believe for us it's so imperative that we hold on to the truth that Paul the Apostle told us in the book of Philippians, that because we all bring a resume in here and a lot of things on our resume are painful and hurtful, that we got to forget the things that are behind. That's what he named his first son, forgetfulness. Why? Because his past held pain. 
His past helped hurt. His past had some excruciating moments in it, but he refused to be held hostage by past pain. And because he refused to be held hostage by past pain, his next son would be called fruitfulness. And we cannot go on living a fruitful life for the glory of God if we're going to live with a past holding us hostage today. People have wronged you. People wronged him. People wronged me. Those are the things that happen. People have hated you for no reason because maybe you're a follower in Jesus Christ. People have lied about you, gossiped you, slandered you, misunderstood you. You know what? That's just part of being on this planet as a believer. We need to get over it, forget those things which are behind because fruitfulness lies ahead if we can forget what's behind. If Joseph's God can do that for him, and if Joseph's God is our God, our God can do that for us today. So we look at this, and what's he present? So, so because he was willing to be forgetful, that enabled him to be fruitful. I don't think there's anybody in here that doesn't want to have a fruitful life. I know I want to have a fruitful life. And, and, and what, I, what I see about Joseph was because he was unwilling to let the wrongs that people had done to him, in fact, his heart. It kept him in a place of continual fellowship with the living God. And for you and I, we recognize that it's our abiding in Christ that produces the fruit in our life, and it's by the fruit in our life that our Father is pleased and our Father is glorified. So what does that mean? That means I need to deal with my bitterness. That means I need to deal with resentment. That means that I need to deal with unforgiveness or I'm going to miss out on all that God intended for my life. And I don't want to miss out on all that God intended for my life just because the devil sent somebody into your path to do something to keep you from being fruitful. I love this about him. Father, here's forgetfulness and here's fruitfulness. May the same be said about us someday when we stand before God in heaven that I forgot those things which are behind so that I could live a life in close fellowship with Jesus Christ so that the fruits of the Holy Spirit and the works of eternity could be accomplished in my life because I didn't allow myself to get taken out by bitterness, hatred, anger, resentment, whatever it might be. Look at this. Verse 11, Israel, Jacob. Now, now all the things he's thinking about. And Israel said unto Joseph, I had not thought to see thy face. And lo, God has showed me also thy seed. God can show us things that we never thought we would ever see. What I mean by that, I, I mean that, that you might see the salvation of that spouse you've been praying for for all these years or that best friend that you've been praying for all these years or maybe that prodigal child who's living in a pig pen all these years when your faith has been weak and think I've been praying for this for years. I don't know if I'm ever going to see it. God can cause us to see the things that we never thought we would see. Jacob never thought that he would see his son. He thought it was a done deal. And I'll tell you this right now, someday we're going to get to heaven and I think we're going to be real surprised by who we're going to see there that we didn't think would be there. And we might be very surprised by the people that we don't see there that we thought would be there. 
And he took them both, Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and he brought them near unto him. And Israel stretched out his right hand, and he laid it upon Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and the left hand upon Manasseh's head, guiding his hands wittingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. So, so Jacob brings him up to get the blessing. The older one's going to be on the right hand to get the blessing. And, and, and Jacob does one of these moves to him. And, and he switches hands at him because the blessing was going to come down through Ephraim. And he says here, and he blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my father Abraham and Isaac did watch, the God which fed me all my life long unto this day. He recognized now. Chapter 15, or verse 15 here, Jacob is remembering that God had taken care of him his whole life. God had provided for him his whole life. You know, and I wonder if his mind went back to what his dad told him, that there was a day when God had asked your grandfather to take me up on the mount and to offer me as a living sacrifice. And, and at the last moment when when Abraham showed absolute obedience, loving God more than he even did his only son, whom he loved, and he stopped him at that last minute, provided another sacrifice, a ram in a thicket, and at that place he called him Jehovah Jireh, meaning the Lord shall provide. And I wonder if a lot of Jacob's reflections here was on the very fact and the nature that Jehovah Jireh has provided for him his whole life, as he has for you and I. And the angel which redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads and let my name be upon them. In the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand upon the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he held up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head, under Manasseh's head. And Joseph said unto his father, not so, father, but this is the firstborn. Put thy right hand upon his head. And his father refused and said, I know it, my son. I know it. He also shall become a people, and he shall be great. But truly, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. So we see here what, what the, the, the law of the firstborn was always, the oldest was always supposed to get the position of authority, the, the position of the priesthood in the family, uh, two times the land allotment of, of everyone else. So as he brings them up there, but, but God had something different in store. And the same thing happened with him and his brother, but he out of manipulation got his birthright and his blessing. And, and Jacob saying, I'm not going to let these guys go through that. I'm going to make sure the one that God wants in a position is the one that is going to go into the position, whether my son understands it or not. But that's the way God, God knows what he's doing. Remember in 1 Samuel 16, when, when Saul had forfeited his anointing as king because uh, of his partial obedience, and, and God had to arise up a new king, and, and he chose one out of the house of Jesse, and, and Samuel goes to anoint him, and he looks at, at the oldest son, Eliab, and he's like, surely the Lord's anointing is on him. And the Lord said, no, it's not. I'm a God. I look, you're a man. You look at the outward. I'm God, and I look upon the heart. And then the younger son that they totally ignored, didn't even invite him to the party, was out in the sheep field. That was David. Because God in his sovereignty knows how his plan is going to come to work, and he puts people in position and nothing like a custom can hold him back. 
And he blessed them that day, saying, In thee shall all Israel bless, saying, God make thee as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And he set Ephraim before Manasseh. And Israel said unto Joseph, Behold, I die, but God shall be with you. A tough thing, I'm sure, for Jacob to tell his son. But knowing that in the faith it's not permanent. And that he would have a heavenly father to be able to look to, even though his earthly father was gone. And he's going to bring you again in the land of your fathers. And that's what he would do with the nation of Israel after they spend 400 years in Egypt. Moreover, I've given you the one portion above thy brethren, which I took out of the hand of the Amorite with the sword, and with my bow. So it's probably speaking about a, a portion of land that he actually was able to conquer, and he gave that to Joseph. But as we get into verse 49, or chapter 49, uh, what we see here really is, is Jacob's eyesight is failing, but his insight isn't. All right? So his physical eyesight is failing, but his spiritual insight is not. And he's going to pronounce blessings on his sons. And these blessings are prophetic in nature as these different sons would go on to have offspring that would take over different sections of Israel. I know it's kind of historical, but, but Israel is very important to the church because they're the ones that gave us our Messiah. You know, and, and we're told that God said, I will bless those who bless thee. And in thee, all nations, all families of the earth shall be blessed. And we are blessed because Jesus Christ is a Jewish Messiah. That's why Israel should mean everything to us. So, so this is a little bit about Jew, uh, Israel's history. We're going to go through it here kind of quick before we take communion. But Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. So God's going to give them prophetic understanding. You know, one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is the word of knowledge. And, and that's when you might get put in a situation with someone and all of a sudden you've got some kind of a knowledge about a situation or about an individual that they need to know. And you had no way of knowing that other than God showed it to you because God knows. <laughs> so kind of similar as we see this. But he's going to give them prophetic understanding and it says here, Gather yourselves and hear, ye sons of Jacob, and hearken unto Israel your father. Reuben deals with the first one. The firstborn was a position of prestige and privilege. He says, My might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of my dignity and the excellency of power. You're unstable as water. You shall not excel, because you went up to your father's bed, and you defiled it, and he went up to my couch. Now, if you remember with him, unfortunately, 43 years prior to this, he went up and he had sexual relations with Jacob's uh, concubine, Bildah. Now, one of the things we recognize is that the forgiveness of God is absolute, and I'm so thankful for that. But that doesn't mean that it always makes consequences go away. For him, he says he, he was unstable. Why? Because this guy was led too much by his passions 
And I believe for us, it's really important to know that there's a lot that we can forfeit in life if we don't allow the empowering of the Holy Spirit to give us the fruit of temperance in our life, self-control. All right? Now, the firstborn benefits that he should have enjoyed were the blessing, the birthright, and ruling authority. But from him, no prophet, judge, or king that we know of ever came from this tribe. Spurgeon said, so a man may have great opportunities and yet lose them. Uncontrolled passions may make him very little who otherwise may have been great. And that's what happened with Reuben. Now, Reuben was the one, no? I mean, he had some good attributes about him too. He was the one that stopped his brothers from killing Joseph. And actually, he had a plan to come back after Joseph was put in that pit, not knowing that he was sold uh, into the caravan to head to Egypt, and he was going to go back and, and bring them back home. So, verse 5 says, Simeon and Levi are brethren, instruments of cruelty are they in their habitation. You, you remember these individuals, uh, they, uh, they were the second and third born. They were instruments of cruelty, retaliation. They killed a whole town full of men because one of the individuals in that town raped his sister their sister Dinah. So they had uncontrolled anger, murder, abuse, whatever you want to label it. Anger is something in the Bible that's not wrong. Uncontrolled anger is wrong. The Bible says be angry and sin not. Some of the things that we see that are being passed as law or some of the agendas that are being pushed that are bringing so much harm into people's lives and so much in rebellion to the word of God, those things should make us angry. But it's what we do with our anger. So Levi and, and Simeon, they were weak, or, or Simeon was weak numerically, and he had to share the land with Judah. But, but Levi, if you will, take a minute and go to Exodus 32 with me real quick. I want to show you something about Levi that changed everything for him. And this is speaking about his ancestors, the tribe of Levi. Now, this is when Moses goes up the mountain. He comes back down the mountain with Joshua. And Joshua hears, it sounds like there's a, uh, there's a noise of war in the camp. And when they can't come down, they find the whole camp of Israel uh, worshiping a golden calf that Aaron had allowed them to make. And apparently, they just threw it all into the fire. And that's what came out from what he's saying. Uh, so verse 25 of Exodus 32, and when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked under their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who's on the Lord's side? All right. In a time of rebellion, in a time when people should have known better, in a time where people should have been committed to the only one true living God, Moses says this, who's on the Lord's side? Let him come to me. And look at all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. 
Okay, Levi made a decision. Nobody else might be going that direction, but you know what? I want to be standing on the side of the Lord. Is so eventually they would become the Levitical priesthood, right? They're, they they wouldn't have any inheritance. They would serve at the tabernacle and the temple. Their inheritance would be eternal. It wouldn't be anything of land here. So you can go back to to Genesis, but that was a major turning point in that tribe. Judah, thou art he whom your brother shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah, your lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion. And as an old lion, thou shalt rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now, if you remember Judah as the individual, he was the one that suggested that, hey, we could get some money if we human traffic our brother into this caravan that, that's going to Egypt. Okay, so we see that he didn't deal faithfully with his daughter-in-law who tricked him, dressed up with a prostitute, and got pregnant by him. That was Tamar, if you remember that. So he's definitely got a, a shady past. But he also exercised an act of sacrificial love by offering himself in Benjamin's place when that cup was found in his sack. And it really brought a breaking to Joseph that there was a real change in this man's life. But he was in a ruling position. Judah means praise. He inherits the leadership role. He'd be the ultimate leader. And the coming of the greatest leader, the Lord of Lords, comes through his lineage. Remember Revelation 5, 5, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. It talks about when Shiloh comes. Shiloh means peace, the king of peace. Remember when Jesus was born, they said, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. The source of peace is on earth. That's what they told the shepherds. So, Verse 13, Zebulun shall dwell at the haven of the sea, and he shall be as a haven for the ships, and his border shall be unto Zidon. So either way he looked, uh, Zebulun, he was the sixth child of Leah. Uh, his location was between the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee. Also his area uh, that Zebulun would take over would be Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. Uh, verse 14 says, Issachar is a strong donkey, couching between two burdens. Uh, compared to a donkey at this time, it was not an insight, but very valuable. Uh, you carry a heavy load. They were very sure, sure-footed. He would become a big and strong, the third largest tribe. And he was in a lush and fertile land. Uh, the area of Jezreel is where this tribe settled down. Uh, his fault would be that he was passive and docile. He wasn't a fighter, and therefore he paid tribute to the Canaanites for peace. Verse 16, Dan shall judge his people is one of the tribes of Israel, all right? And he, Dan, shall be a serpent by the way, an adder in the path that bites the horse's heels so that the rider shall fall backwards. Dan, the snake, compares him to a serpent. The snake was always a symbol of Satan. Dan's tribe was the one that brought satanic influence, their location was a cult center, according to Judges chapter 18. They migrated north. They set up graven images, had a priesthood of pagans. It was the center for idol worship. 
We find in the book of Revelation, when 12,000 people were sealed out of every tribe, Dan was omitted. This tribe actually stumbled people to spiritual death. God, because he's such a restorative God, we find during the millennial reign that Dan is listed as one of the, one of the tribes. So God works through this tribe once again in the future ahead. Verse 18 says, I've waited for thy salvation, O Lord. Gad, a troop, shall overcome him, but he shall be overcome at the last. Out of Asher, his bread shall be fat, and he shall yield royal dainties. So Asher was a very fertile agriculture area that would produce delicacies fit for a king. Naphtali is a hind let loose. He gives goodly words. That land was near the Sea of Galilee where the greatest words in the world were ever brought forth, the words of Jesus Christ in his ministry. Much of Jesus' ministry would take place in this area. In Joseph. So we get to Joseph. He's a fruitful ball. So Joseph, the fruitful life. It says that even a fruitful bow by a well whose branches run over the wall. The well, speaking of a place where something could be watered, this is where Joseph continued to live. He continued to live in fellowship with the living God. We get insight really into his life and all that he'd gone through that the fruitful life was because he kept himself right by the well of living water. And it's exactly what God wants us to do. He wants us to stay planted by the rivers of living water so that we can bear forth our fruit in its season. But he's a fruitful bow, even a bow by a well whose branches run over the wall. You know, I, at home I got this box of strawberries, right? I, 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 I built this raised box of strawberries, but, but they would not allow themselves to be contained in there. They actually went outside of the box and they're growing all over the place because, because they've been watered and, and, and their, their tendency is just to, cl- to grow. The fruitfulness of Joseph's life was he was in clear and constant fellowship with God. He was fruitful even in uh, adversity and he continued to grow. If you will, go to Second uh, Peter with me for a moment, because I think we're going to wind up here just looking at the, the life of Joseph before we close out and take communion. Second Peter chapter 2. Or I'm sorry, First Peter chapter 2. It says about Joseph, you know, he was a fruitful bow by the well whose branches run over the wall. So the branches run into other places, right? They bring life, they bring nourishment, they bring health to other places outside of the parameters and the borders of self. That was the life of Joseph. It overspilled. It brought life to the Egyptian nation and to the nation of Israel, not to mention the other nations that aren't even mentioned. Because his communion was so close to the well of living water, Jesus Christ, that God could communicate with him his plan to bring salvation physically to so many people. But it says about him, the archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him 
and they've actually hated him. You know, I read in a devotional that God never uses anyone to a great degree until he actually breaks that person completely. Joseph experienced more sorrow than the other sons of Jacob. And it led him into a ministry of food for all nations. For this reason, the Holy Spirit said of him, Joseph is a fruitful vine, near a spring, whose branches climb over a wall. It takes sorrow to expand and to deepen the soul. Even though he was wounded greatly. Look what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For even hereunto you were called, because Christ also suffered for us. <clears throat> and he's writing to the church that was suffering at this time. The persecution that they were going through, all that they endured because Christ was now their Lord and Savior. They were his disciple and they were following him. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Look at, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. And when I look at the life of Joseph, I look at the same kind of a mindset, not even giving that example, not even having those scriptures yet, but nevertheless living with that same kind of heart. And for us today, we get to celebrate. We're going to break there. We'll pick it up next week. But we're going to break there because for us today, we're so thankful that he suffered the way he did. We get to celebrate, we get to take communion today, and we get to remember our King who laid down his life for us. When I think about Jesus, I think about him being a man of sorrows. I see him weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. I see him weeping over the rejection of the nation of Israel because they had no idea what was going to come 40 years down the road. I see him weeping. And I see him as a savior with his face set as a flint, heading to a cross, and nothing could stop him, and nothing would stop him. Because of the insight that he had, Jesus just didn't live in that moment, but he could see beyond the moment. He could see what his blood would buy today, right here in this church, Old Paz Chapel, and the other people who are gathering today in Christ, the church of today, the church of now. He bore our griefs, carried our sorrows, wounded for our transgression, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with the stripes were healed. Look at everything we transferred over to him. Our iniquity, our sin, all our wrongs. Every commandment we slaughtered, every skeleton of the closet, everything we transferred over to him. And what gets transferred back to us? Forgiveness, righteousness. We have a perfect standing before a holy God today because of the blood covering of Christ and the robe of righteousness that he grants to those who put their faith in him. 
That's what we get today. That's why we celebrate communion. That's why we get renewed in the love of God. That's why we're reminded that, that Paul told us that the love of God was demonstrated and while we were yet enemies, Christ died on the cross. This is how it's demonstrated. So the love of God might not be defined to you by where your life's currently at or the things that you're currently experiencing that maybe things aren't going that good, don't feel that good, don't look that good. But the reason you know you're loved by God is because of this right here, because God sent his son. Because there was no other way. And because God was not good and God was not okay with you and I spending eternity separated from him forever. Instead, he opened up the doors to heaven, but the doors to heaven only come through the blood of his son. And that's what we get to celebrate today, the sacrifice of Jesus. Didn't end there. The gospel doesn't end at a cross. The gospel ends in an empty tomb. That he rose again the third day, just like he said. What did that do? That validated all this to be true. All this to be true. Destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it again. And boy, did he. And if there's any doubt of that, you check out what happened with the apostles, man. I'm willing to seal that deal with my blood because I know it to be true. I saw him. I know him. And that's what he said. That's what I believe. And that's what I experienced. So we're the church at the end. But we've got the same Jesus walking with us day after day after day because of that empty tomb. And he loves us as much as he loved John, as much as he loved Peter, as much as he loved Paul, because that blood was shed as much for us as it was for them. And we get to celebrate it today. So, Father, we thank you that we are loved to a degree that your Bible tells us that we can't even comprehend. But I pray, God, that even as we sit with you today before we take communion, that we would reflect on that love and that you would minister your truth and your grace to us. Lord, what a great time for us to take heart assessment, for us really to examine ourselves, to be able to walk out of here truly before you with a clean slate because we're going to celebrate communion. It's what was implemented in Acts chapter 2, God, what you did with your early church. We think of the people that, that were suffering so much, people that were given their lives, they were martyrs. But the communion table meant everything to them because of what it represented. The fact that our sins have been paid for. The fact that you love us. The fact that we can have that confidence. Oh God, I pray if anybody in here has come to the house of God but never come to you, the God of the house. That you would probe that heart, Lord. Cause that heart to know your love. And to turn from their sins and, and to put their trust in you, Jesus, as their Lord and Savior. Step into that life. Lord Jesus, just live through us. Have your way with each one of us. Thank you so much that we know there was no other way. And because there was no other way, you endured the cross, despising the shame, because we were the joy set before you. May we be humbled by its truth. May we be humbled by your love. In Jesus' name, amen.